0: But let's begin this morning by reading from Acts chapter 16, and I've got it up here on the screen so we can uh, see it together. It says in chapter 16, verse 12, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in that city for some days. Well, we have Paul and Silas and maybe Timothy and perhaps Luke, and they're on a ship to Philippi. And that's the next book that we're going to study on Sunday morning is Paul's epistle to the Philippians. And we'll look this morning at verses 1 through 11. Paul planted the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey. Five years later, while on his third journey, Paul visits Philippi on the way to Corinth and then again on the return trip to Jerusalem. We find that in Acts chapter 20. But in chapter 16 of Acts, that's where we studied about the church of At Philippi. Remember Paul's dream where the man from Macedonia came at night and he asked Paul to come to Macedonia. Now my brother believes that this may have actually been God using a vision of the Philippian jailer himself calling Paul to share the gospel saying come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul and Silas and others set sail for philippi so the church was born when paul and his friends met with a group of jewish women who had gathered to pray and worship together on the banks of the river just outside the city it only took now 10 jewish men to have a form a synagogue but there wasn't even one devout jewish man who was meeting with these women lydia One of the ladies there accepted Jesus as Savior and invited Paul and Silas to stay in her home with her family until they got in trouble with the authorities. The church grew overnight, I believe, when Paul and Silas were thrown into prison for exercising or releasing a demon from this young woman, the the People were using this demon as a fortune teller. And when this happened, they had Paul and Silas thrown into jail where around midnight that night, Paul and Silas are praying and singing and it says the prisoners were listening when an earthquake shook the prison and all of the doors came open. The jailer about to kill himself thinking all the prisoners had escaped, heard Paul's voice from deep inside the prison saying, we're all here, we're all still here. Well, the jailer and his family came to know the Lord that weekend, and perhaps many of those prisoners as well. And before leaving Philippi, Paul and Silas, it says, they met with the believers and encouraged them once more, then they left town for Thessalonica. Paul hasn't, been, uh, hasn't seen any of these folks now for several years and hundreds of miles as he's continued traveling the Roman Empire. He's spreading the gospel and encouraging the churches. We know that this letter is written from prison because it tells, he tells his friends in verse 13 of chapter 1, It has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Probably written from a Roman prison, he spoke of the palace guard. And in chapter 4, he'll mention Caesar's household. Chapter 4, verse 22. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. So the palace guard is, best understood as the emperor's personal bodyguard, stationed there in Rome. Caesar's household likely refers to the Christian members, the saints of the imperial service, the maids and butlers and palace staff there at the capital in Rome. We find in Acts 28 that Paul was under house arrest in Rome for two years, If he wrote Philippians from Rome, it may be dated somewhere between the years of AD 60 and 62, about 30 years after the crucifixion and the risen Christ ascending into heaven. Paul teaches that the joy of the gospel should rule our lives, regardless of our circumstances. And he praises these believers for living out and living for the gospel. One of the things that makes this church in Philippi stand out from all the other churches is that they supported Paul financially as he continued sharing the gospel throughout the empire. We see this in chapter 4, verse 15, where Paul says, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only, and even in Thessalonica you sent uh, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Isn't that interesting? When we give to the Lord's work, the Lord has an account up in heaven that he keeps to bless us, to give us the crowns, the rewards that we have waiting for us. Paul also praises the Philippian church for giving to the ministry in Corinth. The Philippian church even sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to minister to Paul in prison. And they sent him with gifts as well. We read this in chapter 4 of Philippians. Indeed, Paul says, I have all and abound. I, have, I am full, I, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He knew they were sacrificing to give to the ministry. So the book of Philippians might be called a thank-you note. To the saints in Philippi for their generous gifts. Philippi was a Roman colony in northeastern Greece where many Roman soldiers chose to live in retirement. The strong Roman character of the community, a citizenship that included many privileges, that may be why Paul emphasizes that Christians are citizens also of heaven. Another reason most scholars believe that the, this uh, epistle was written from, from Rome near the end of Paul's life is because of his concern about facing death. We see in verses 21 and 22 of chapter one, "For me," Paul says, "to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, you notice he defer- differentiates, you live on when you die, if you know the Lord." But he's saying, if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. I'll keep working. Paul has a general formula for opening many of his letters to the churches. And here in Philippians, he starts with a greeting, verses 1 and 2. Then a statement of thanksgiving, verses 3 through 8. And a prayer for their needs, verses 9 through 11. Let's look at the first chapter, verses 1 and 2, and I have them on the slide up here because I want to highlight seven important words that Paul gives us. I, Paul, and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In these two opening verses, Paul throws seven important words at us. The first is bondservants. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. The idea of bondservant comes from the Old Testament found in Deuteronomy chapter 15, where the Mosaic law allowed an indentured servant to become a bondservant voluntarily. Look at verse 12 with me. If your brother or a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. It goes on and talks about you'll also give them things to take with them. But in verse 16 it says, And it happens that if he says to you, I will not go away from you, because he loves you in your house, since he prospers with you. Then you shall take an all- and thrust it through his earlobe to the door, and he shall be your servant, bondslave or bondservant forever. Paul is writing to free men, Roman citizens in Philippi. And he's saying anyone who comes to Christ in the eyes of the Lord serve as bondservants of Christ. A badge of honor that Paul held even high above his mere human status as a Roman citizen. Paul often referred to himself as a bondservant of Christ. Now the next word I want to talk about is the word saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Now all believers are saints through our spiritual union with Christ. We possess this position of righteousness called saints because because the merits of of Christ are imputed to us by God's grace. Now imputed means God attributes or accredits Christ's righteousness to us. Second uh, Corinthians says, he became sin that we might become his righteousness. He wore our sin that we might wear his righteousness. The word imputed then is something that God gives us because of Jesus. Here's our first thought in the bulletin. Remember, our position as the Father sees us in Christ is permanent. It's eternal because it's imputed or credited to us by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Now, I don't know who first said it, but they say you're either a saint or you ain't. You either have Jesus in your heart, or you don't. Next, we come to two important titles of the early church leadership. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Well, bishop, elder, and pastor are all interchangeable terms in the New Testament. Bishop, or episkopos, describes the ministry as that of an overseer. Elder, or presbyteros, describes the man, the overseer, as one who is mature, an elder. Pastor, or poimen in the Greek, describes the one who feeds and shepherds the flock. Godly men, appointed by God, or anointed by God, appointed Elders in the early church. We see this in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. So when they, that would be in this case Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders, presbyteros, in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So this is our second, part B in the bulletin. Notice that the elders were not voted on by the congregation. Elders were appointed by godly men, anointed by the Lord. There was no congregational rule of government in the early church. A great example of what we're seeing in the early church took place right here in Willows in 1995 or 6, somewhere in there. Lee Talley was asked by a group of local people to consider planting and pastoring a new church in Willows. Open gate had not yet existed. There was a home Bible study that met together. These are the folks that contacted Lee and asked him to consider and pray about coming to Willow's. When Lee Talley believed that this is what God wanted, that he was anointed by God to come to Willow's, and when he committed to pastor this motley crew, the Bible study transformed or became a church. Pastor Lee was the elder, the teaching elder. The others were all saints, God's children, God's sheep. Now I guess, technically, according to our passage this morning, we would say that Pastor Lee was the official overseer, the episcopos the elder no the bishop now this makes me struggle a little because in my wildest dreams i never thought i would call my younger brother bishop tally <laughs> open gate the church was born they thought of my brother lee as the pastor elder the lead elder the episcopos right bishop now, Chuck Smith says in his book, Calvary Chapel Distinctives, he says this. It was more of an episcopal form of government for Calvary Chapel. We believe that God's model is that the pastor is ruled over by the Lord and aided by the elders to discover the mind and will of Jesus Christ for his church. This, in turn, is implemented by the assistant pastors, us other guys. In accordance with Calvary Chapel form of church governance and leadership. It was the task of Pastor Lee, the Episcopos, to appoint elders to aid him as they sought together to discover the mind and the will of Jesus for his church. Paul's next important term or title is deacon. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, as the early church began to grow, the physical needs began to burden the elders. They chose men, spiritual leaders, who had spiritual service responsibilities to the assembly. We see this in, the cha- in chapter, Acts, chapter 6 of Acts. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles felt that that they should not give up the study and teaching of God's word. So here the Lord is beginning in the very early days of the church to recognize the different spiritual gifts and give opportunity for men and women to serve in the church where they were gifted by the Spirit. In the Calvary Chapel movement, the deacons are men called who have the gift or ministry of helps. They look after the facilities and the needs of the congregation. Now the next word I want us to look at in these first two verses is the title that Paul gives to Jesus. He calls Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he mentions him as Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ twice, but here he mentions him as Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is important first, the first reason, because each of us who calls Jesus as our Savior still need to make him our Lord. Lord signifies our relationship to Jesus as his bondservant. Now, this is a giant step beyond recognizing Jesus as Savior. It puts Jesus at the very center of our life, at the very center of my life. Jesus is Lord when he is the ruler, the boss, the master of your whole life. He can't be Lord of just part. He must be given control of your entire life, the whole enchilada, you might say. Now, the second important thing Paul is pointing out to these Philippian believers, these Roman citizens, is that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Paul will emphasize this later when he declares these citizens of Rome to be first and foremost citizens of heaven. Chapter 3, verse 20, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly, Wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, have you noticed that in these first two verses, Paul doesn't need to declare his apostleship or his authority. He identifies himself and Timothy as bondservants. And that's all the authority you need with people who love the Lord and love and respect you. (coughs) Verse 2 speaks of the grace that comes, or of the peace that comes as God, by his grace, dispenses his goodness to all who believe the gospel. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this same greeting was used by Paul in six other epistles. Now, God's grace is his favor needed by each of us. Grace is God's blessings bestowed without, without regard to my merit, we call it God's riches at Christ's expense. The last important word in these two verses is the word peace. Now, this isn't the reference to the ending of hostilities between sinners and God that we find in Romans chapter 5, where it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our lord jesus christ now it is true that as believers we do have peace with god our father but this peace is the inner tranquility or the peacefulness that god ministers to the hearts of believers the peace that keeps us spiritually confident and content even in the midst of turmoil philippians chapter 4 verse 7 Paul describes this peace. He says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. The source of these blessings is God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul continues in verse 3 with thoughts of thanksgiving. Verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you, for you all, with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is thankful to these people for them. They've brought joy to Paul through their constant contact with him over the years. Their love for him has been more than just contact and concern, though. They have responded to his needs through prayer and gifts and personal help. This genuine nature of their faith prompts the Holy Spirit through Paul to make us a promise. Not just to these special friends, but to you and me as well. This verse says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's our key verse this morning. I want us to make it our memory verse. So I want you to say it with me this morning. I've got it up here, so we all say it in the same translation. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, that takes the focus off of me. It takes the focus off of my abilities or my strength or my faith. My salvation doesn't depend on my fortitude or my stamina or endurance. I didn't begin this work of salvation. God did. And he promises to finish it, to complete it. I love the picture that we find in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is speaking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I responded to the gospel. Jesus knocked on my heart's door. He began the good work with a knock. The work of salvation is really his. I don't hold on to God's hand. God holds on to mine. Let's say that verse again. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. i love to hear you say that. There are stories about my kids growing up that come to me with certain biblical truths, and this is one of them. I don't hold on to God's hand. He holds on to mine. I'm his responsibility. He's my father. Now, if I tell you this story, promise me you won't judge my lack of parental wisdom. This is the only picture I have of Donnie, age five or six, where he's walking. This picture is taken of him at camp at at Hume Lake. Walking was a struggle for Donnie, if you can notice how he's having to balance each step, but he loved to get around on his own. How else can you get in trouble? One early winter as a family, we went up to the mountains, close to Big Big Bear, just north of San Bernardino. There was a flimsy footbridge going over a stream that Donnie, about age five or six, watched a bunch of children walking across. It was a little scary because the stream was about 15 feet below and you needed to hold on to this rope kind of handrail for balance. Well, Donnie insisted he could walk by himself. I said, no, you're going to hold my hand. You know what's going to happen, don't you? He wouldn't let me grab him with my death grip he had to be holding my hand you know what's going to happen as we approached the bridge at the last moment i twisted unknown to donnie two of my fingers into the back collar of his zipped up winter jacket Let's say that memory verse one more time. (laughs) Being confident of this very thing. Say it with me. That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Once I respond to the Savior, God is responsible for my eternity. He's responsible for me. Remember, I don't hold on to God's hand. He holds on to mine. He's my father. He's a good father. (laughs) Better than really better than most of us, all of us. Well, Donnie's legs collapsed, and he fell. The hand holding the rope came off. You knew he would. His small hand slipped out of mine, but my grip, twisted into his jacket, held him there in midair, swinging over that stream below. He's still alive, right? (laughs) Today, many times, Don signs his letters from Youth for Christ with the phrase, in his grip. Now, he's not talking about me. He's not talking about my grip. And I said to him this week when he sent me this picture of one of his letters with his lousy signature. He, I said, Donnie, do you remember that? And he says, I remember the story, five or six. Well, let's say our key verse one more time. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Until Jesus comes back for us, he won't let go. J. Vernon McGee, my favorite Bible teacher, says it this way, You can count upon God to consummate, to finish whatever he intends for you. I like that. Whatever he intends for you, he'll finish it. He's going to see it through. How wonderful. Pastor Sandy Adams, who I really enjoy his work, he says, What Jesus starts, he finishes. I know you're discouraged. You've tried and you've failed, but take heart. Jesus hasn't begun his work in you to leave you high and dry. He doesn't abandon us at midstream. I like that. Jesus has no unfinished project like the rest of you men out in the garage. Let's move on to verse 7. Paul says in verse 7, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. You want God's grace in your life? Be a partaker with others who are sharing the gospel. Paul has heartfelt love for these people. It's as though they have literally traveled with him on each journey into each jail through their prayers and their gifts. Point C in the back of our bulletin. The church at Philippi unknowingly became what we call a sending church. Partakers with Paul, partners in God's work of grace ascending church. As Paul said back in verse 5, they were a fellowship in the gospel. That's what we want to be, a fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, it's not by chance that we're studying this passage right now, because right now is our opportunity to be ascending church. Ascending Churches, our Open Gate family is planning their missionary journey. We're on the internet, so you know who I'm talking about. We can be partakers. We can pray and give just as these Philippian Christians did. That's the kind of involvement that binds the hearts of people together. No matter how hard and really tough life can get, when you and your family, and I looked it up, are 6,753 miles away from willows, away from cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and brothers and sisters, and, well, part D in our bulletin, life can get pretty joyless. Not when we go through tough times, but when we go them alone. So it's our turn to stay connected, to stay in touch. That as Paul said in verse 5, we can experience the true fellowship in the gospel as we help send the gospel from willows around the world. Verse 8, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. He's in this jail cell. We don't know if it's in the Mamertine prison, which is down in a hole across from the Colosseum, or whether he's in the home where it's a house arrest now. But he's longing for these folks with the affection of Jesus. I like how J. Vernon McGee says this, and I also feel this concern about people that have been part of my ministry. J. Vernon says this, Now that I'm getting old, I receive letters from former students and from many folk who in my ministry over the years have come to a knowledge of Christ. I feel that all of these are my children. I have a lot of children scattered around over this world, and I love them in the Lord. He says, I understand how Paul felt about these folks. Now it's interesting. I was talking to my daughter Debbie this weekend, Debbie is enjoying a 40th reunion with six of her high school best friends who all came to know Jesus in my ministry in Escondido. Five of those six were school friends from non-Christian, non-church homes. And she told me, I can't remember whether it's three or four of their parents and family have since come to Christ as well. So, I can call all seven of these 60-year-old ladies my kids. So Paul's prayer for these folks he loves so dearly is in verses 9 through 11. Let's look at that. Paul prays for four of our greatest needs. Number one, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. So number one in our bulletin, that our love may abound, that it might overflow, spill out to others. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This also brings us to another thought in the bulletin, part E, God's love, we call it agape love, is his visible mark in us that we truly are God's children. But it seems that this agape love has certain characteristics. He says here that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge. God's love doesn't disregard the truth about us. The Lord deeply loves us sinners. Yet, he hates the sin in our lives. So we can't ignore sin, but we must find ways to deeply love people in our lives. Let me say that again. We must find ways to deeply love people in our lives who are sinners, especially our family. Paul goes on in verse 9, in knowledge and all discernment. Discernment is a form of judgment with clear thinking and wisdom. We need by the Holy Spirit's guidance to discern God's wisdom as we love those around us. John 16, uh, 13, John says, However, when He, the Spirit of truth, see, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. I like how the NIV translation calls discernment, depth in insight, depth of insight. That's what God wants us to have, coming from the Holy Spirit. Number two of our greatest needs is in verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent. So number two in our bulletin, we have to desire and seek God's best, the excellent, for ourselves and others. Like we find in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. When we came to Christ, we made a choice between our sin and God's grace and forgiveness. We chose good over bad. God wants more than just good for us. But He desires the best that life can bring. We all need to pray for this discernment by the Spirit to pick out, as he says, things that are excellent, to pick the best even over the good. That's what God wants for you. Number three, finishing verse 10, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. We're the church. We're the bride of Jesus, the bride of Christ. Paul is still talking about our love, but the message kind of sees it as a a marriage relationship between you and Jesus, between Christ and me. And so I like how the message version says it. Live, number three, live a lover's life with Jesus, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus, our groom, will be proud of. Don't become intimate with darkness. Don't flirt with sin. Our love for the Lord and our brothers and sisters in Christ is to be pure and blameless, focused on Jesus and our love for him. Number four, our greatest need, is in verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I think Paul is speaking here of the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians chapter 5. My thoughts and actions are guided by the righteous character produced in my life by Jesus. So number four, in our bulletin, we're to bring glory and praise to God by being examples, by living out the nine flavors of God's agape love, the fruit of the Spirit. Worship team, come on up. Paul is writing from a Roman prison, yet he continues to express the confidence in God's love and provision. He is confident that he who began a good work in you will what, complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's my desire for us this morning. Also, if each of us read through this love letter to the Philippians this month as we're going through it, we can ask the Lord to give us the same sense of trust and joy and contentment that Paul has. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, be Lord of our lives, we pray. Look into every room in the house of my life and become Lord of what's going on in that room, please, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you hold on to me, to us. God, we pray that you would just hold us and draw us close. We love you, Lord. Help us to be faithful and true to you as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.